Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. Um, I'm going to be talking to Luke today. Um, and Luke is, I believe you're an ex-Christian, right? It wouldn't be right to currently call you a Christian. Um, and he was in kind of like um, pretty kind of fundamentalist type sect. Um, I came across this article he basically wrote about um, conversion therapy in a particular seminary that he was attending, um, or seminary or Christian university. Um, and I guess we're going to talk about um, issues around... Um, how evangelicals kind of think about sex, how to talk about these things, but then also Luke's personal experiences and story within there. So if, I suppose to introduce yourself, how, how did you come about writing that article that I've um, linked in? I, f I forgot what the magazine's name was, uh, um, RVA or RVA? RVA magazine, yeah. RVA. So I initially had written uh, a much longer article that part of what you, what you see actually in RVA magazine was part of this longer article, which was building on a first article that I had published through Queerty um in okay. in january of this year and it was this longer piece just about liberty and at first i was doing my best to um separate myself from liberty because of course uh on my cv uh it says liberty university and that's not a, a selling point okay. and so i started writing about my experience and i started writing about conversion therapy specifically because i think that's um perhaps the the one of the really dark underbellies of the university is the conversion therapy program that they don't advertise uh, a right. lot of actually uh, conversion therapy programs don't advertise or don't advertise uh, directly they use a lot of uh, uh, euphemisms they use a lot of uh, rhetorical gymnastics uh, to talk about uh, to, to advertise what they do and they don't necessarily say we're trying to make you uh, attracted to women, uh, they instead use, you know, other sort of, uh, again, uh, rhetorical maneuvers or whatnot. And so I, I did my best and I'm doing my best to show what Liberty uh, does and uh, specifically how it treats its students, more particularly yeah. how it treats its queer students uh, on campus. And so I wrote these articles uh, and I've written a few since, uh, just more broadly about liberty, not necessarily just about conversion therapy, right. but also about uh, the former president, Jerry Falwell Jr., who's been in the news. And uh, I've, I've since uh, begun actually applying for postdoctoral positions with the project of doing a queer history of liberty. So oh, right. I'm doing my best to, to expose liberty for what it does uh, and how it treats its students. So taking a step back then before we get into like all that stuff that you experienced, what, how did you, because you were just saying before this that when you were around 14, you chose to become a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and do you want to talk about what that journey was? Like what, what kind of happened in your life or what series of events? Uh, and then um, what was the kind of culture like that you were in? And also like, that, you know, did you know at this point that you were gay? How did that jive with kind of the teachings that were going on in the church? Um, yeah. yeah, do you want to talk about all, all those sorts of things? Absolutely. So I'm born, I was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I was raised in a family where my mom took us to church when we were little, um, up until about grade two or three, and then we stopped going. Uh, my dad wasn't a Christian. Uh, and so I had some exposure and it was to uh, a, a, a a Baptist church. It was more particularly Fellowship Evangelical Baptist Church uh, in Toronto, not too far from my house. And so when we were little, we went to that church. But again, we stopped going and I I didn't um, really know too, too much ultimately about Christianity. I knew enough, you know, from Sunday school and from, from church when I was little, but really uh, it was a, a, a surface level understanding. So uh, grades, what was it, grade eight, going going into grade nine, the summer between grade eight and grade nine, my brother got really into creation versus evolution. And okay. this conversation about origins fascinated me. 
Uh, and I started watching all these DVDs with my brother. And then I started going to these websites and, you know, uh, checking right. out what these conversations or, you know, who was talking about what in, in this uh, uh, field or arena, I don't know what you'd call it. And surely enough, at the end of uh, exploring uh, both sides, more so, you know, leaning towards the creationist side, because my brother right. was leaning more so towards the creationist side, I decided that I, if I believe that there is a creator, if I believe there is an intelligent designer, then I need to go figure out who that creator intelligent designer is. And of course, okay. with my background in, in the church, uh, I decided that I was going to go to that church again. So I, I said to my mom one morning, I, I woke her up and I was like, hey, mom, uh, can we go? Can we go to uh, church? And she was like, no, like, come on, like, leave me alone or whatever. I was like, come on, please, please go to church. So she's like, fine, we'll go to church. So we went to church. And in the bulletin, uh, I saw that there was a youth group. And so, and I was actually, we were sitting in the balcony. I looked down and I saw the youth group who was sitting in the same spot from when I was a kid, uh, where my older <laughs> brother used to sit when I was you know, younger and he was a part of the youth group. I saw them all sitting there. And I was like, oh my gosh, that, I remember him. I remember her, um, you know, the vague right. memories. And so that Wednesday uh, was youth group. So on Monday morning after, after church, I went to school. I went to Rosedale Heights School of the Arts, like a very artsy school. Um, and <laughs> I went into art class, visual art class. And I said to my friend, my friend Becky, I said, "Hey Becky, do you uh, do you want to go to church with me?" And she was right. like, "Fuck yeah, I do!" And so we were like, <laughs> "Let's go!" And so we went to church and uh, youth group, and on Wednesday, and then I just didn't stop going for about. Uh, well, I didn't stop going throughout high school, and I went to Sunday morning services. I went to youth group. I went to all the other you know special events and whatnot. I uh, started going to the the winter retreats or the different youth retreats they had. Then I started going to right. camp. Uh, so from you know Beacon Bible Camp to Joy Bible Camp to all these different you know uh, camps that I was I was at. Uh, I started uh, you know becoming more and more involved, and even to the point where I was uh, involved in in the leadership program ish thing uh, at the school. And then I decided uh, when I was there that I wanted to go uh, to. Uh, to liberty but at first i mean i was raised again i'm a canadian and so i was raised on a very strict anti-american diet from my dad like we okay. did not like right. america in our household and so i had no plans to go to the states but my uncle who uh he was working for liberty he was the national recruiter in canada uh okay he or technically is my mom's cousin so whatever that makes him in relationship to me but uh we just call him uncle gary and so uncle gary uh said why don't you come down to liberty for uh a trip and I was like mm, no thank you like I don't really want to go to Virginia and he was like no no you'll have fine just try it out so I was like oh okay. so I went down uh and I loved it and then I had decided that I wanted to go there and that was in grade 11. um <laughs> Liberty had accepted me uh really early right. and so I had I had in my mind that I wanted to go to Liberty but to backtrack to your question about sexuality um and and the church and in part what drew me I think in large part you know I think about it today I was talking to my sister <laughs> and I was saying, like, I feel goofy now to think that I, you know, was so easily, in a lot of ways, what I feel now is being tricked into it. Um, okay. But I think it's, 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 you know, I, 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 and we were, she was chatting, or we were chatting, and she said, like, what do you think, you know, drew you into it? And I've, and I've been thinking about this for years, right? Because again, like, what was it that made me susceptible to buying into this system that actively negated who I am? as a person, right. as a queer person, but more generally, just as a person in general, right? Or more yeah. generally in general. Uh, I, 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 I think about this um, a good amount now, and I think, you know, what motivated me to go uh, to Liberty? What motivated me in the first place to even become an evangelical? And I think in large part, um, 
rigid doctrines or rigid uh, understandings of of any faith, um, and you know, I know Christianity the best, I suppose. Um, it provides some sort of framework. It provides some sort of safety, right, where you feel that you have all the answers. Uh, when I was an evangelical, I thought I knew everything, and I thought when I was yeah. going to go down to Liberty, even. I was like, what do they have to teach me? I already know everything I need to know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and especially from an American, <laughs> how dare they try to teach me anything? And so I, you know, I thought I had all the answers. I thought that I knew where I was going for eternity. I thought I knew uh, what was right, what was wrong, you know, what was yeah. of God, what was of the enemy. And mm-hmm. when you have that binary understanding of the world, the world is simpler, the world is easier to navigate. And I think mm-hmm. that for me, it was it was a question between do I choose God or do I choose my sexuality? Because not to say that right. all Christian theologies have that sort of dual opposition, but evangelicalism and fundamentalism yeah. certainly does, right? You have to choose. Mm-hmm. Do you choose yourself or do you choose God? Yeah. And that's the way it's framed. It's not, and, and I, I don't even think that the question should be framed that way. I think that's like a you know a mistake from the beginning of of you know exploring these uh, different parts of who you are and what makes you you. And so for me, I. I decided that if, in fact, I am to believe in uh, this God that I profess to believe in, I have to choose God over my sexuality. Because, you know, the idea of dying to self and taking up your cross, these were, Mm. of course, verses that that led me in that direction to the point where I negated a pretty significant part of who I am. And I'm not saying my sexuality is everything because it's not, but it is part of who I am. And it is part of, you know, even my gender expression, right? Like, I'm... I, I don't know, like, I'm certainly no football player, you know, but I, you know, and I think that that for me was also regular. That for me was monitored in some ways where I remember the first time I went, uh, I had decided I was going to join the dance company at my high school. Right. Pardon me, it was, it was, it wasn't, it was before the dance company. It was uh, when I was just choosing that I wanted to dance at my high school. I went to my youth pastor and I said, Hey, I'm thinking about joining the dance or taking a dance class at my school right. as one of my academic credits. And he literally looked at me and said, why? And, right. you know, now, I mean, dancing is one of my absolute favorite activities. I absolutely love to do it both on stage and, well, not so much on stage anymore. I wouldn't really want to do that anymore. <laughs> I don't think I'm all that great. But, you know, I love to dance. And so this idea that dancing, uh, a very, like, fundamental part of, like, human culture, you know, transcultural uh, sort of uh, uh, phenomenon, that this is something that all people do, regardless of gay, straight, whatever, that that was questioned, right? Like, even just little things like that. So for me, it was this larger... Um, I think ultimately looking back uh, and, and and again, questioning what motivated me to, to, to join uh, this church and then ultimately to really subscribe to the belief system was I think that it was safe. I think that as a kid, you know, of course, like even in 2020, like it's still hard for a lot of folks to come out. Um, even though I was living in Toronto, the considered the most multicultural city in the world by some, um, you know, and, and going to art school, <laughs> not like nonetheless, right? Yeah. Like, as if like it wasn't clear that <laughs> I was uh, not straight. And I uh, I think that for me, I was still terrified to come out for a few reasons, um, mostly because of my mom. And my mom has turned out to be exactly what I thought she was, which is a complete and total homophobe. And there's that. Right. But putting, putting her aside, I mean, like, you know, when you're a kid, you want to fit in. You want to be normal. And not to say evangelicalism is normal, particularly not in Toronto and particularly not at Rosedale Heights School of the Arts. But I think that um, that 
framework of being straight and saying we have the option for you to be straight because I knew that there were you know people talking about if you you know if someone's uh, you know struggles with same sex attraction which is the language that they use when you're referring to someone who's gay that they talk about there's a way out for these people that you can um, be you can find attraction to women so I knew that going into it um, and as a result. Um, I think that I chose evangelicalism because I wanted to be quote unquote normal. I wanted to fit in the right. way that everyone else did. And it was offering me some sort of se some semblance of normalcy by being straight. And I think that for me was the, uh, a big motivating factor, though at the time I wasn't thinking about it in these terms, yeah. I don't think. Um, but looking back, I think that's what I would probably say that drew me um, to evangelicalism. And on top of that, I think also just questions of, of, of faith and spirituality still do interest me. I'm still fascinated by those conversations. So um, I think of both an intellectual curiosity and also uh, uh, and a spiritual and moral and ethical curiosity, but on top of that, uh, a sense of safety and a sense of uh, concrete, absolute truth answers uh, were, right. were attractive. So, and then for you, um, so so during this time when you're talking about um, finding this kind of certainty in Christianity um, that helped you to make sense of things, was that more like um, like a su subconscious sort of um, you know, feeling different or feeling like life's more complicated and stuff like that? Or was it like this conscious, like, no, like I, I'm gay and life is different for me or something, you know, like did, were you aware or did you just have like kind of like um, feelings towards guys saying not toward, not towards girls and you were kind of like, well, I'm not sure how I deal with this or were you, were you like, how, how, because I, I know for some people maybe they realize either in like a deconstruction of their faith process or when they're older, they're like, oh yeah, I had um, these feelings for the same sex all throughout like child, that's what that was and I couldn't make sense of it. Mm -hmm. were, were, is that the same for you or were you like pretty, you know, so, for some other people it's like, um, you know, I, I, I just knew from age five or something, you know, like what, how, how is it for, for you? I'm the, I'm the guy who knew from age five as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I always knew I was attracted to men. I mean, I thought of, I've like isolated the one time, the first time I think I remember being attracted to someone, um, which was around probably about six or seven. Right. Um, but I, oh, I absolutely knew. But the thing, this, and I think this is, this goes, um, <laughs> my experience of understanding my sexuality was filtered through first uh, evangelicalism. And then now, of course, okay. you know, my, my deconstructive lens. But for a long time, I had convinced myself and, and, and I think had been convinced by others, by other Christians that, um, that I wasn't gay, but I, I struggled with same sex attraction. And so yeah. the phrasing that they use is SSAs, same sex attraction, um, that when, and that divorces the individual from the attraction. So this idea within evangelicalism, within Christianity really, um, is the idea that, that, that everyone is latently home or heterosexual. And at any point that someone's gay or, pardon me, struggles with same-sex attraction yeah. is that it's an aberration from that. And it's, it's something that can be fixed because if it, in fact, it's not part of who you are, if that's not yeah. intrinsic to your subjectivity or, or, or personhood, then of course, that's something that can be changed. Uh, in similar yeah. to how a disease can be, you know, uh, yeah. handled or um, uh, I don't know, maybe a demonic possession or <laughs> something, something, ex something that's not yeah. necessarily you. And so um, the way that they describe it uh, in evangelicalism and in gay conversion therapy more generally, though, of course, most gay conversion therapists are uh, religious, but not all to be sure. And of course there are different conversion therapies across religions and whatnot. Um, so the way that they understand it is that at its core, it's not a sexuality issue that me being gay is actually at its base a, a gender issue. So the, okay. the argument goes that 
it's not that I am, am, am gay. It's that I didn't align with the quote unquote capital M masculine or man, and I don't identify as a man. And because I didn't identify properly according to a certain, you know, hegemonic, uh, heteronormative straight script that I veered away from that, the way to get me back on it is just to realign my gender identification. So if I am only to play football, if I am only to, uh, you know, uh, hang out with men the way that men are supposed to hang out with each other, which of course is just like this cultural, like uh, dominant understanding of masculinity, uh, then I can realign my gender identification so as to realign my sexuality. And, you know, I, you know, I can still remember in my, in, <laughs> in my convergent therapy manual, um, I was assigned Alan Medinger's uh, uh, growth into manhood, resuming the journey. So even that, like the metaphor of a journey and like veering off and okay. growth back into manhood, if I, I need to grow into proper or full uh, manhood, uh, in there, he had instructed uh, his readers to do things such as carpentry. And I was like, how Jesus okay. of you? Like, yeah, <laughs> what, what do men do? They do carpentry. Another guy um, who he's from, I think it's called Quest Ministries in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, he also talks about, he says, all you have, not all you have to do, but he says, when one way to, to, to align with men is if you are to, what did he say? If you are to read the sports section every morning, and then when you go and hang out with your buddies, go and talk about it. And soon enough, you're going to love sports. And you're like, what yeah. kind of alchemy is that? Like, I don't know if it works like that. If you tried like trying to get me interested in football, it's just probably not going to happen, even if I read right. enough sports sections. Um, and so these were like the the tactics, right? So it's this idea of, of, of performing, of doing um, yeah, yeah. that it's not so much uh, who you are, because again, who you are is straight, but it's if you are to do these other things, that's going to get you back in line and where you need right. to be. And so, so did it always kind of, I mean, was there much of this in the church beforehand, like this kind of, before you went to university and there's this whole um, program of conversion therapy, was there much like, um, here's like a set of behaviors for you to adopt, you know, like, like, here's how I can, we, here's how we as like um, a community of churchgoers or whatever can, can um, almost like, because it's not necessarily articulated like this, but maybe like can can put pressure on you in certain ways to behave. And was it was that always there from and how and how did you internally do? Did you think, yes, this is how God wants me to behave. So I've got to um, behave that way again against how I feel or um, yeah, what was it? What was going on there? Well, leading into liberty, I mean, no one knew, well, I think people knew they just didn't. It was like the open secret, right? Where okay. <laughs> it <was> straight. <laughs> You know, it's one of those. I think okay. that um, no one uh, ex knew explicitly that I was that I was gay. No one. I had not told okay. anyone. And so, because of that, there was no. I, I don't think there was any intentional effort per se. Though, when I do look back and I think about, um, I think about the people in my church for in high school. I do sometimes think that there was like. I remember this one time. This was one one guy <laughs> who he came over to my, I, I, I had left, I'd gone to Liberty and this is actually post Liberty. Um, but he came to my place in, in Hamilton, uh, Ontario, which is where I was doing my, my MA. And I was there and he came over with his girlfriend at the time. And they just kept talking about like, Oh, Luke, you're such a man's man. You're such a manly man. And it was okay. like, what? Like, no, I'm not like, what, okay. where is this coming? And it was just this like very forced affected, bizarre moment where I remember being like after they left I was like what 
the heck was that? Like, why did they kept right. like they kept emphasizing me being really manly and like, oh, you're such a. It was it was bizarre and like I even saying it now, I'm like, like I feel uncomfortable thinking about it. But I think that there was this uh, way of putting pressure on me to, or maybe like a way of affirming me without, um, or affirming me uh, in my masculinity and my manhood. Um, as right. a way to preemptively or because they knew deep down or not so deep down that I'm gay, <laughs> I think that there was this push for me to perform a certain way. And, okay. you know, when, I mean, in church and in a lot of Christian, you know, uh, parachurch organizations or universities like Liberty and all this kind of stuff, a lot of the activities are separated by gender. And so you have guys are doing one thing, gals are doing another thing. And so I think that um, it's kind of built into the system in a way, but I, I don't necessarily know if I can say that there were people who were actively pushing me in that direction, though I can say that there were times where it felt like it and it, yeah. and it looking back, it was just straight up so bizarre, yeah. <laughs> like so bizarre. So then um, talking into, go, so going to um, this university then at that point, were, were you aware that, um, you were aware of the program was that like a deciding fact that was a deciding factor in going like you what you wanted this as part of your spiritual journey or something or is that yeah the way that it worked was that i went down to liberty six times before i had uh i i went there for um for to study i had gone down on what they call college for a weekend which is these weekend trips where you get on a charter bus and you drive on down to virginia through the night and then you get there for like three days and then you go back home um so I did this a bunch of times because I thought it was so fun. Um, meanwhile, looking back, like who, anyway, uh, when you're 16, 17, you know, just, these are the things you do. And so I went down on these trips. Uh, and when I was there, I had found out because in convocation, which is their chapel service, uh, you go to chapel service and on the, there are four screens in this basketball stadium, this place, Liberty's, okay. Liberty's the largest evangelical university in the world. Um, right. And so largest Christian university in the world. Uh, it's one of the actually fifth, it's like, I think the fifth biggest university in America because of its online program which of course is separate right. and different from its uh, residential program, but nonetheless, it's, it's a, a pretty sizable university. And so when I went down to Liberty um, for one of these trips, I saw on one of the screens after convocation, after chapel, which is uh, where, where they, on these screens, they would, you know, uh, what's the word? They would be filming it so you could see the people uh, who were speaking uh, at the front of the stage because the place is so big that you could, you know, you could look up these screens. Afterwards, they had these, um, what are those called? Announcements. So university announcements. So things that were going on on campus that weekend or things that right. were going on, you know, whatever. And one of the one of the announcements I saw was this, uh, this it said, are you struggling with same-sex attraction? And I was like, guilty. And so <laughs> I I saw that and I, and I wrote down the guy's name uh, who who was the one uh, who led this this group? Because what it said was, well, I don't know if it was for the group or if it was for the individual therapy. I don't actually remember which one, but mm -hmm. it was something along the lines of, uh, you know, if you, are you struggling with same sex attraction? Like, reach out to Pastor Dane Emmerich. So I wrote his right. name down, uh, and then later on, of course, you know, I went and looked him up, and I saw who he was, and I saw what he did. Um, uh, but uh, wait a second, let me let me let me just make sure I'm not missing. Yeah, sure. Um, no, that's, I didn't look him up. I didn't look him up. Pardon me. I, I wrote his name down, but then I went right. and I said, I went to my friend, John, uh, my friend, John, and I said, Hey, like, <laughs> who's this, who's this pastor Dane guy. And I, and, and I think that he had this reputation on, on campus. And so people knew him as the guy who worked with uh, both people who were struggling with porn addictions and right. those who were uh, struggling with same sex attraction. So 
I was in the know of who this guy was. So that, so that was part of what um, influenced me ultimately to go to Liberty. I mean, Liberty also at a certain point, they, they gave me um, uh, a pretty sizable scholarship to go and right. that allowed me to go. But what, are the, what motivated me to go uh, when I was making actually my decision, I was thinking between a university here in you know Toronto uh, or Liberty, <laughs> and I was I had this little like tally, so like one check for Liberty okay. if it was you know for this section or for this uh, this pro, right. uh, one for uh, University of Toronto, one for Liberty, whatever. The only thing I gave two checks for was Liberty because uh, okay. pardon me uh, was was the conversion therapy program. Yeah, yeah. Because that was and again looking back thinking like, that was obviously twice as important as anything else to me. Um, so that ultimately like wasn't necessarily what tipped the scales to go to Liberty, but it certainly was something that was, that was pretty important. Yeah. So I, I certainly knew about the program. That was again, a large motivating reason why I went, uh, and off I went down to the old LU. And, and then, so how, how did, um, was there like a first time that you went to like a session or something? Um, and what I suppose in, in kind of like talking about that, is there a point at which you started to think, um, I don't know, maybe like this is too far or this is like not a therapeutic or abusive in some way or, you know, like how, because like like when I reflect back on some say like one-to-ones and things that I had um, that were under the guise of like helping me say with depression stuff when I was a Christian, but I look back at some of the conversations and I kind of think, well, actually, you know, the, this person wasn't like a clinical psychologist. It was just some kind of someone using their theology to try and advise me. But so, but some of the ways that they dealt with things were actually quite harmful psychologically and quite um and or or you know it, it might be that you come out and say actually that, no they were really good. So I, I don't know at, the, at this point like you know how how uh, so yeah how what what was it like at first and and uh, was it good or bad or or what were the pra practices like? So what happened was that I had this, like, if we can call it, I guess, like a, a romantic encounter with someone on my dorm, my spiritual life director on my okay. dorm, one of them. And he wouldn't talk to me afterwards. And my actually, my big plan for going to Liberty was that I was going to go down and I wasn't going to go to conversion therapy right away. Again, I wanted to go. That was certainly part of the plan. But the plan was that I was going to go down and date <laughs> Christian guys for however long, you know, have my fun. And then at the end of, you know, uh, my four years, right. find a wife, go to conversion therapy, find a wife and off I'd go and, you know, live a life. Okay. Of, I don't remember. Right. That was my big <laughs> like plan. Yeah. Um, because my big thing was that I didn't want to ruin my Christian witness. I didn't want to date non-Christian guys and then have them say to me, wait a second, aren't you a Christian? Um, yeah. I thought that was going to be giving Jesus a bad name. And so I thought I can't do that with non-Christians, but I can do that with Christians. And of course, if right. this is a big, you know, Christian university, there's gotta be some other guys like me. And so I was going to go down and that was my big plan to, you know, go date Christian guys. Um, and that didn't work out so well, but what happened was, um, I, I met this guy, you know, on my dorm and he, uh, after, you know, our, uh, our <laughs> weird encounter, he, he says to me, he's like, uh, or he said, like, we're, like, we're not talking about this. Like, there's no need to right. talk about this. And I was, you know, blown away because yeah. this was my first, you know, romantic anything. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I was so upset. Yeah. I was so distraught. And so um, I certainly didn't have anyone back home to talk to, right? Like, I wasn't out to any of my friends yeah. or family back home. Um, and I also wasn't out to anyone um, at Liberty either. And so for me, it was this question of what do I do? Who do I talk to? And so 
I I decided we need to fast track this like four year plan and start going to conversion therapy. And okay, so bright I, icing. Yeah, right. So I emailed <laughs> I emailed Pastor Dane and I, I I made up a fake email. I was like, what's the what's what's like the most different email I could possibly think of so as to like not have him ever come out and you know investigate and find it it is it is I who uh sent this uh this email so I made up a fake email it was like something like Texas football fan or something like that like <laughs> the, kid, the kid, kid from Canada versus Texas football fan. and so I, I I messaged him and I said hey if I'm to come talk to you will I do I have the chance of being reported do I have the chance of getting in trouble do I have the chance of getting kicked out will my mom find out blah 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 right and he responded back nope this is completely confidential so I felt, of course, safe going into that uh, yeah, yeah. that um, that space, and so I went. I still I still remember what I was wearing. I remember where I was, you know, uh, waiting in this dark. Uh, it was called a prayer room, which his office was connected to the prayer room, and I'm sitting there waiting for him to finish up his meeting with this other guy. And so he, you know, he does, and then uh, he says like Luke, and I was like, or Lucas, I think is what he called me, uh, which is I think what I anyway. So he. Come on in. So we go in, uh, we sit down and I mean, this is the thing. I think that, you know, if you've seen films like Boy Erased or if you've, you know, read memoirs like Gary Conley's Boy Erased or, you know, other accounts of conversion therapy, um, I'm thinking specifically of Sam Britton from The Trevor Project. He has a lot of uh, uh, videos about discussing him uh, or he's in these videos, he's discussing his experience and really awful mm -hmm. um, uh, experiences. And mine was, again, Mine was not good either, but it wasn't physically harmful, right? It wasn't like I was, right. you know, even, sure. even, I didn't even have to do like calisthenics or like go like do exercises <laughs> with other men because that's very effective in turning people straight. Um, <laughs> and so yeah. I go to, uh, again, in, sitting, I'm sitting in this room and again, throughout my four years, it was, it was very similar. Pastor Dane Emmerich, um, he, he's this like father like figure. He's this, he's this very like paternal, um, warm person in a lot of ways, which of course, you know, if you're a, a seven, well, I guess at this point I would have been 18, pardon me, an 18 year old kid. And you have this guy who for the first time in your life, you've told, you know, uh, he wasn't the first person I told I was gay. There were people like on mm. MySpace and stuff. Um, right. <laughs> that was, and that felt so like risky. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he was the first person I really opened up to about my sexuality. And what happened? I mean, like, and and when and when you have someone for the first time in your life who isn't judging you, and you have someone who you've told a really par big part of you that you're wildly ashamed of, and he doesn't right. reject you, unlike the rest of the Christian community, or at least yeah. that you expect the rest of the Christian community to reject you if you are to reveal this information. It was this experience of feeling, at the moment, or in part in the moment, validated, feeling um, uh, not weird. And I think that that was something that was so alluring. That was something that brought me in. And I think that he made me feel not weird. However, the flip side to all of this is this really um, guilt-based uh, way of operating in the sense that what we did, I can give like a quick picture as to like what a conversion therapy, like, a, you know, session with him was like, and right, it was okay. where you would, we went in and I mean, for the first few meetings, he was asking a lot of questions about my mom and dad, like how like strangely like oh, right, he okay. was. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot of them are right. It's this narrative within yes. conversion therapy that it's mothers are overbearing and fathers are absentee or uh, yeah. emotionally abusive or whatnot. Problem is, my dad. You. They didn't hit you enough for something like have right, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm not tough enough. I should have gotten beaten yeah. up a little bit more. Um, and so uh, the problem was that that narrative half fit. My my dad's phenomenal, so like that didn't fit. My dad was like right. this like absolute gem of a human, 
Um, and then my mom is overbearing and my mom is, uh, you know, very much fits the bill. We've, we've solved it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And this is exactly, it's this selective, yeah. um, reasoning or selective like use of evidence where it's like like confirmation oh, bias you you exactly. see 11 11 on the clock you re but every time you look at the clock and it isn't 11 11 you just forget about that one you that's exactly it that's exactly it so it's like oh uh your dad was was great well let's put that to the side let's not talk about that but oh your mom was like this and you yeah. know and other folks in your life were you know whatever fitting the narrative then uh so that's so that was for me that's how we started off these meetings pardon me that was where we would talk about my family we talked about my brothers we talked about my sister we talked about uh, my friends uh and all these different you know folks in my life and after that what we would do is we read this book alan Manager's uh growth into manhood resuming the journey and there were other books that other folks had um uh one book was called i think it's like you don't have to be gay and i was like i don't know if i want that one i can't carry that around um and you know big writing on the front of the cover um yeah. but so that was my that was my manual um and we read that or he would assign me chapters i still have it i actually don't know where it is i've tried to find it recently but i have the manual uh where and i could find like my little underlines my highlights and whatnot which is so weird to see like what i thought was yeah, important yeah. back then but um so you had this man, you had a lot of prayer and he always would lay his, he'd always like lay his hands on you afterwards, which I, I right. thought about that as well. And like, why was he always like putting his hands yeah. on my leg or on my shoulder or whatever, like okay. on my back? Yeah. Um, very, very weird. Um, yeah. But he did. And then he would ask me, you know, about my failures and my victories and but failures and victories were in this context were the things that I did that week that were fighting against my same sex attraction. And then the things that I, I, my, when I failed, what I did that, you know, what led to that? Why was I, doing these things because I'm gay, but you know, <laughs> that we didn't talk about that. Uh, as yeah. much. And so, uh, so he, so we went through these uh, sessions where we would pray, uh, talk about, you know, my failures and victories, talk about my family still, you know, even though after the first meetings, it was less emphasized, it was still talked about. Uh, and this is what we would do. And every week we would uh, chat. And I think again, so for me, like I would go into these experiences or into these sessions and and feel validated. I'd feel like, you know, I don't feel judged. I don't feel like someone's making me feel weird about this, even though everyone else or seemingly it felt like everyone else would have made me feel that way. Um, uh, and, you know, and you, of course, you hear comments on campus, you hear comments from friends where people are talking about being gay. They even talk about like, oh, Pastor Dane, you know, who goes to those sessions. And I'm like, haha, no, I don't know. what I, I don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyone uh, who goes to those <laughs> sessions. Um, and, and I think that for me, uh, when I think back on Pastor Dane, I think about how he made me feel really good in some ways, because again, it was a different approach to who I am as a person and how he also guilted me a lot. Because again, when right. you have this paternal uh, father-like figure and you have someone who you emulate, right? Like you want to be like him. So he's like your you know, Freudian ego ideal. Like, oh, there's someone I want to be like. Um, when you have someone like that and you mess up, are you, you know, you have these failures. You don't want to go and report to him. Ah, you know, I, I did this again. It wasn't like he sat there and was like, shame, 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 or like, you should feel bad. Um, but it was more so that you, again, like, just because you valued that relationship at the time, you didn't want to upset him. You didn't want to fail him. And so for I me, I, I was, it was very, it was a, a session. These sessions were filled with guilt. And of course, guilt is like when you've done one specific transgression, that's bad and you feel bad about it in that specific context, but you don't necessarily apply it to yourself as a, as a human, as a person. Like I did this, but again, that's, and that same sex attraction is, it's not me. 
And so that's the sinful part or like that, that same sex attraction or like what I do when I'm acting on that same sex attraction, that's separate from who I am. So that makes it a guilt based sort of approach to, to, to this quote unquote sin versus shame, which of course is when you feel ashamed of yourself, it's where you as a person, as a, as a, as a human being, fundamentally you are like damaged or defective or wrong. And of course, for a long time where I just saw this as, you know, oh, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. And, you know, the same sex attraction or acting on it, it's not me, it's not me. But after a while, after like years and years and years of this, you start thinking, maybe this is me, you know, like maybe this <laughs> isn't just like the, a one-off action uh, that I do every so often and that I can like repress or suppress, pardon me, um, for X yeah. number of, you know, days or weeks or, you know, maybe months, but probably not at that. No, I don't think I ever got to a month where I was, you know, being a, a heterosexual. And so yeah. um, I think that, when when you realize that it's not working when you realize these aren't discrete acts these are a part of a these are a, a pattern of acts and actions right. uh, that are a function of your desires you start thinking to yourself well not necessarily just that it's me again that was something that came later but it was more so i'm messed up i'm the problem so yeah. this is where the shame comes in so it's like even though he was trying to say like it's not you it's not you like it's just these specific actions that are bad after a while you start really thinking no i'm pretty messed up because i can't get a hold of this how come apparently all these other ex gays are able to do this yet i am not and when you you know have this uh this pattern of messing up over and over you feel pretty terrible about yourself and so yes pastor dane was this warm father-like figure he was also someone who made me feel absolutely horrible about myself. Right. And I think that Pastor Dane, when I think, I think about Pastor Dane, I think about conversion therapy. And when I think about conversion therapy in a broader sense, not just in, in the context of Liberty University with this man, Pastor Dane Emmerich, I think about it uh, as, you know, in this, in this greater sense, as concentrated homophobia. That's cultural, that's religious, that's whatever. It's where you are able to, to say what homo homophobes across the world are able to say, in a way that it, almost yeah. seems as loving. And I think yeah. that that's part of the violence. That's that part of yeah. the, um, the, how insidious it is because it, it's, it's, it's wrapped and packaged yeah. as care. It's wrapped and packaged mm. as we're looking out for you. We're doing what's best for you. Yet, of course, this is an ontological attack against who you are as a person. And I think that that's um, wildly sneaky, right? I think yeah. that's wildly also effective. Um, in how why or and why so many people uh, go to conversion therapy as adults, not just as kids, right? Because it's not just a a thing where parents force their kids to go. And for me, again, why did I do this? Because I thought this was all in the name of spiritual health, all in the name of uh, being good, and and ultimately living a life of godly normalcy that certainly didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely something um, I notice in conversations is um, this idea of. Well, I see a lot in the in the general cult, broader cultural conversation. There's this idea that um, only Christians believe that truth exists or something, or, or things like um, love exist, and, that, and so they say, well, and, and if we're gonna, if we believe in truth and if we believe um, in loving our neighbor, then we're going to tell them the truth, and the truth is that they're living in, in and it, it's like this redefinition of love to something that's actually very harmful. In and it, it, I, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to frame this wholly as an attack against like Christians or something, because there's plenty of Christians I know who are progressive and don't believe any of this stuff. But I think you can figure it out in a certain way where it is compatible. But certainly like for within that evangelical context, I do see that going on where it's like it's like 
and legitimized almost because it's like well i'm just loving my neighbor i'm just uh, uh, whereas it's like but you you've completely distorted the word love in that context to the point where it's like a abuse and psychologically harmful well i think um, about that too and it's like you know this idea that you'll have people like pastor dane you'll have people there's actually this article it was the first was the first article that was written about being gay at liberty by this man named brandon ambrosino um, who's actually been doing a lot of really good investigative work uh on liberty recently but he has this article that i don't i don't like this article i think i like his a lot of his later work but his early work it was in some ways saying liberty it's not as bad as you think it is it's like no okay. it is and you'd only went there for a year and you didn't go through the conversion therapy program but okay um so but he has this scene in in, in the article uh, and, and he paints this picture of when this one professor, Karen Pryor, who's no longer there, um, she's, uh, she's an English professor. She was the chair of the department when I was there. Um, but he was in one of her classes and she says to him, Hey, I want to talk to you after class and come to my office. So he's like, okay. So he goes to the office and he said, and Karen Pryor says to him, so what do you want to talk about? And he's like, you called me here. And she's like, I know, but what do you want to talk about? And essentially she she coerces him into telling him, telling her that that he's gay. And it's like the weirdest, most like bizarre, like none of your business. And why do you feel so, like you need, you know, that you that you even have like the the platform or the allowance to ask him or make him feel like he has to tell you. It's so weird. Um, but in there, when uh she says to him afterwards, like he says, I'm gay, and I think I think if I remember correctly, he starts crying and she's like, It's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay. And <laughs> this idea of it's going to be okay, because she's a homophobe. Yeah, she's, yeah. she's someone who signed the Nashville statement, which was the Southern Baptist declaration that they still don't believe that being gay is okay. Uh okay. it was this document that was written, I think two years ago, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's like no one asked Southern Baptist Convention, like, stop telling us your views, no one cares. But she's one of the main signers of the Nashville statement. So she still holds fast to this belief. She still also tweets about it. She's like, she's like, some people think I'm liberal in it, but meanwhile, I'm anti, you know, uh, uh, equality. And it's like, you're touting that, like it's, it's something to be proud of bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so this moment where she says to Brandon in this article, she's like, it's going to be okay. I thought a lot about that. And I've thought a lot about what those words uh, are, are saying. And I thought about that in other contexts. When I think about pastor Dane as someone who said the same thing, it's going to be okay. You will, you know, you're going to find victory in Christ. Things will you know, work out for you. Um, and on top of that, even just statements where she says, I love you, because in the article, I, I believe she says, I love you as well. And Pastor Dean always said he loved us. And it's like, what is that love? Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, what exactly is that love that these people are professing? Because when I think about love, I think about it as a form of, in some, in, in many ways, acceptance. And I'm not right. saying that I accept every single part of every single person I know. I know that I have some really yeah, great yeah. friends or whatnot who have some pretty wild beliefs. And I don't love that. But that's having a belief or, or, or is very separate, is, pardon me, is separate from just part of who they are, right? So like, hmm. it's like if I have, you know, a, a friend who's a woman, I'd be like, if I said to her, like, hey, I love everything about you, I just don't love that you're a woman. She'd be like, right. excuse me? So you don't love me because I am a woman. Yeah. So it's like when someone says to me, Luke, I love, I love you, but I don't love that you're gay. It's like, nope. Let's rewind yeah. and let's backtrack to what this love is because love does not compartmentalize parts of who you are as a person, right? And it's this bifurcated or divorced, you know, love where it's like, I love part of you, but I don't love this other part of you. I like this and I don't like, you're compartmentalized, you're, you're, you're divided, you're segmented. And when someone does that to you, again, when it's your very person that is being divided, they don't love you. At least that love's not full. It's incomplete and it's lacking and it's insidiously lacking. And I think that when people have this, this claim that they love 
you know, we love the gay community. It's like, first, like you have like one gay friend. Um, and two, it's like, you don't really love the gay community because if you love the gay community, you wouldn't wish for its extinction. Right. Like when you have these people who say like, oh, I love I love gay, the, like, the, the gay community and there are these Christians who are like they're evangelizing, trying to change them. Right. This is like I mean, what I do is I, I, I study the Holocaust mostly. But, you know, of course, the Holocaust is uh, a part of a greater. Uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, it's part of genocide study. The Holocaust studies is part of genocide studies. Right. right. And there's this one article that I, uh, I, I've read recently and it's just phenomenal. Um, and I th don't even think it was, it's ultimately that recent that it was written, but, um, uh, so in this article, it's called genocidal intentions. Um, it's, it's all about how the desire for, um, gays to be changed, uh, too straight or to be attracted to women, that this is mm -hmm. a form of genocide. Um, that again, if you think about like stripping this person of their culture, right. To remove gays from their, like the queer culture, um, to strip them of their uh, uh, their, their language in a way, right? Not to say like gays have a different, well, some of us have a different language, I suppose. Um, <laughs> it's some of the, you know, words we use, but like to strip them of their language, strip them of their culture, to strip them of their, um, their very being, right? right? This is the form of trying to suppress an entire community and, and get rid of an entire community because ultimately conversion therapists, if they could have their way, the gay community would not exist. And that is a genocidal intention, right? Mm -hmm. That is a desire for an entire group of people to be right. erased. And that is, um, exactly why I do my work that I do about conversion therapy and liberty now, because I want to expose these folks for exactly who they are. These are people who want me as a person to be gone, right? And to have to know that there are people out there who desire your erasure, who desire your extinction as, again, part, you know, as a, as a group, it's wild. And and it's yeah. it's something that I think needs to be talked about. So, so I think from you know like intern internally thinking about the the mindset that they're coming from like, like you've been saying they'll they'll decouple the the person from um being gay so it's easy for them to do but i think what they'd want to say to some of the things you're saying there is like um you know if, if someone's um a, a pedophile or a rapist or something do we just accept you know like that's and they say it's a part of them, but, you know, you know, do we just accept them? Um, and, right. you know, I, cer I certainly do disagree with the comparison of, of um, being gay to being like a pedophile or, and, and all the, but the problem is you've, I guess you've kind of got to meet people where they're at with those ideas. Like what, what would you want to say to someone who, who's kind of thinking like that about, um, yeah. Do you have well, first, first of all, it is always fun to be compared to a pedophile. It's always a <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pedophile or rapist. I mean, I think with both of those instances, again, just to think for a quick second when people, you know, that's what I always say to people, like, just think like, right. Just like think for a quick second about the, the very nature of your comparison. And let's think about the terms of a pedophile, of a rapist, and then of mm -hmm. a gay person, right? If you, the terms of a, of a pedophile and a rapist are that, that it's, 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 it's non-consensual sex. Right. It's where these people, there's a power yes. differential, there's one group uh, who doesn't have the ability to say no, uh, or they might yeah. say no, but it's not listened to. And then with, of course, a, a gay couple um, or just gays in general, um, when there's some sort of consensual uh, relationship that they that they're they're entering into, um, it is consensual by definition. Right? Yeah. Like these, and so I think that there's that. Um, I think that, again, you think about the long-term effects and violence of rape. Um, when you have people who experience PTSD, 
<laughs> and they have, yeah. again, like what I study in large part is trauma. And so thinking about trauma um, and what uh, what results in trauma, um, these are moments where it's it's where the, whatever happens to you is is in the moment the action or the the the, the act that is uh, done to you is so enormous. It's so extreme. It's so big for your brain to take in that it, it, it breaches the boundaries of what your brain can normally take in to the point where you can't even uh, uh, you you can't make sense of it, right? And that's why right. people oftentimes after they've been traumatized they go back to the site of uh, trauma. The origin of trauma and they they repeat things they reenact things right. almost because it's trying to give voice to what happened because yeah, when it yeah. happened in the moment it was too extreme to actually take mm -hmm. in and it was too extreme to narrativize that ultimately afterwards by acting out uh yeah, and again it's yeah. literally acting um and reenacting what happened it's a way of trying to give voice to it or embody or even in an embodied sense to what happened right. And so when you think about that <laughs> when people are raped or when people are yeah. molested versus when you have a gay yeah. couple who engage in, in consensual sex yeah. or it's the really great, you know, coffee date or yeah. you know, putzing around in a decor section of a department store, um, as we gays do, mm. um, I think that <laughs> that's when you, you see that there isn't enduring trauma, right? So yeah. from a psychological perspective, uh, not the same thing from a power based perspective, not the same thing. Um, yeah. and so I think that, uh, it's, I think it's also very easy to make these claims about the gay community when you don't know gays, right? Yeah, right. Um, when you have because you don't have to humanize them. You don't. It's not. Yeah. Right. And oftentimes we're not humanized, right? If you think about the language that's used to describe gays, we're described in animalistic terms. I look at those filthy pigs. Look at those disgusting animals, right? Those dogs. Right. One time, my ex, um, his, uh, he came from a really religious family, and his, uh, we were, we, or he overheard. Uh, his what's it called? Uh, his brother-in-law saying about us like we're just like two filthy dogs having sex, right? Um, okay. And I was like, you don't even know if we have sex, but okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So with this comparison, the way that we're talked about again, it shows the the language we use to describe the gay community, um, or the way that you know a lot of folks used to uh, uh, the language they used to describe the gay community again reflects how they don't see us as um, mm. <laughs> they're equal. Uh, and so I think that. Uh, Ultimately, those that's probably what I would say, like, get to know a gay person first and foremost. And if you know, there is always that token one gay friend they have, um, but don't actually ever engage in conversations that matter um, or pardon me, that don't matter in regards to sexuality. Mm. Or uh, I would say, the, again, the psychological ramifications as well as the power based dif uh, differential in these uh, relationships. So do you have any um, thoughts about why it is that our culture um, sort of does look at um, homosexual relations as like so differently to heterosexual relations? Like, um, for, cause so for, for me, like one thing that really hit this home for me was I was reading, um, there was like a, a philosopher called Aristophanes who um, like he wrote a play about Socrates called The Clouds. Um, which is like a, a, a kind of like making fun of Socrates because he's always got his head in the clouds with all these questions. And another of the the myths um, that Aristophanes sort of had was that every person um, was like half a person, and there's like a second half of a person that that they're meant to like join with. But but in the story, it's not like um, so. There's like for every man, there's a woman, and that's why there's men and women. No, he's he's like you know, and for some men, there's another man, and for some women, there's another. And it, I was like, there's no. Um, homophobia or like it was just accepted like that's just how some people are and the modern narrative seems to be um well actually it's unnatural for there to be people who are attracted to people who are the same sex as them um 
I'm trying to I'm trying to avoid saying there are people who are same sex attracted. It's like the in group language of um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, you know, like, I, and I was thinking, well, where when when was it that it stopped just being like this thing? You know, because obviously there's other historical cultures as well who have viewed homosexuality as like this this alien thing. But what why is it that in some cultures it's just been like, yeah, that's how people are, or this thing that's fine, um, and in in other cultures it isn't, and it, specifically for our culture today why is it that we view it differently i mean is this just a random throwback to like uh the christian sexual ethics of the past 200 years or or, or does it come from something else have you got m many thoughts around that uh i think first of all i mean it's important to like talk about it in the context of today and then to i, I like the idea of like finding a genealogy as to why this is uh the way right. why do we think about it um oftentimes gays are reduced to a sex act Right, we're reduced to oh, they they have anal sex, and it's like again, you don't know my sex life. Um, right, but this is this is something that today, um, when I when I, <laughs> when I came out to my mom, uh, she, uh, oh my word, it was this like string of text messages, um, mm. a lot of which were spelled incorrectly. But we put that aside. Um, I said, "Know your audience, Cheryl." Um, but uh, <laughs> she said uh, in these text messages, as well as these phone, these phone phone messages, as well as when we did actually talk, um, she just went on and on and on about all of what she imagined to be my sex life, and right, using really descriptive, like real descriptive yeah, yeah, terms. Yeah. And I was like, "Why are you thinking about this?" And you know, this is, I think, the way that oftentimes. Um, gays are framed is as we are simply just sexual beasts, right? That we are defined by what we do in the bedroom. Um, right. Which is not always the case. And that's not always what you see uh, with straight people, right? But what you do see a lot of the time is that women are also sexualized in a very, you know, uh, I wouldn't even say, well, I guess in some ways particular, but again, a lot of what, how women are seen is mapped on to how the gay community is seen and vice versa. And so I think about, you know, when a woman's, uh, you know, wearing uh, something that is, you know, scan she's scantily clad, she's seen yeah. as, you know, her body. She's seen in embodied yes, terms. Right. She's just legs, she's just breasts, she's just lips, she's just whatever. Mm -hmm. And same with the gay community, right? We're seen oftentimes in our in our corporeal form. We're seen as, um, or we're perceived. Uh, we, the rest of us doesn't matter, yeah. Right. Yeah. The rest of uh, who we are, and if we're kind, or if we're smart, or if we're whatever, in in the heteronormative imagination, we are mm. seen as sex acts. We're seen as physical bodies, and so I think that the way that women are treated, the way that women are seen, the way that women are uh, sexualized is comparable to, again, there are obviously differences, uh, but comparable to the way that the gay community is seen. And so I think yeah. about, you know, uh, if you think like the sort of way that women have been seen in, uh, as, as emotional, again, gays are seen as emotional. Men, right. straight men, um, but men, real men, are <laughs> yeah. those who are, are, are heady. Those are the ones who are smart. They're wise, right? That they're, right. and then, so it's, it's this, the, the, the opposition between uh, mind and body is oftentimes split or at least gendered uh, where the mind is masculine and the body is feminized. Um, right. And and I think that, uh, you know, women are these emotional feeling creatures that are the temptresses right throughout history. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, it's Potiphar's wife who is trying to, you know, get her boy. And like, you know, it's all these like women who are the temptresses. Yeah. And so I think that 
the way that women are seen as sexualized and the way that femininity is seen as then therefore lesser because the mind is seen as higher or better or more noble, um, I think that maps onto and, and allows us to understand uh, homophobia in some ways that at least illuminates certain aspects of homophobia, um, which is sexism, which is a hatred ultimately of women. And ultimately, uh, if we were to break that down even further is this hatred of femininity, right? Because if right. you even think about like, homophobia yeah. towards women versus men those are two different sorts of homophobia right against yeah, lesbians yeah. or gays um right that there's this difference in how they're seen and even just where people feel safe more uh, you know around certain groups and not around other groups right that gays mm -hmm. are seen as lecherous as these you know these people who are out to get you and you know straight men <laughs> feel just so uncomfortable i couldn't be even in a room yeah. with a gay guy it's like yeah trust me Judging by your like bootcut jeans and like your ill-fitting shirt, I want nothing to do <laughs> with you. And you're wearing Hollister goods, sir. Like you better believe I'm not interested. However, it's like right. that gay men are seen as these, you know, they're out to get you. Same with women, right? Same with, you know, if you think, then you think about racialized communities, right? You think mm -hmm. about, you know, black men, they're out to get, uh, you know, our white women. Think about Jews during the Holocaust There's uh, and before the Holocaust, all the propaganda that was framing them as these, you know, uh, these insidious. Sexual, yeah. That's it, right? And yeah. so you see all these, really all this is to say is that, you know, uh, black folks, Jews, uh, gays, women, all these minorities are seen really similarly and the structures that undergird the hatred towards these communities is so comparable and it's really not uh, in any way uh, surprising because it's hmm. they just recycle these weird scripts about minorities because they're different and they're just not used to them and they're nervous around them because they don't know them as well. And I think that mm -hmm. now that we see within popular culture, like uh, a, more, a growing acceptance of, of gays, of, uh, uh, you know, there's, uh, of, of other uh, communities, think of, you know, pick, pick your minority. And in this case, I'm the minority I am is gay. And so it's like, there's this growing acceptance because there's more exposure. There's more, uh, they're, they're talked about more. And I think mm -hmm. that in part, like what, what pushes against homophobia is seeing more queer representation and, and what that even means. Cause oftentimes you're like, if queer representation is good. It's like, okay, why? And I think yeah, why? Yeah. Because it's actually showing people, uh, even if they're, you know, characters in a show, it's showing, it's humanizing them, right? And if they don't have anyone in rural Arkansas who, who they know is gay, they at least have people on Glee, which I just finished the season finale five years uh, late, uh, and it was phenomenal, and I really right. wish it didn't end. That's besides the point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. So, so just for um, where we were, though, um, talking about your experience with conversion therapy as well. We didn't really talk about wh at what point did you start to think, you know, this is weird or this is inappropriate or, and at what, you know, was it that you doubted Christianity as like, um, like a metaphysical system that aligned with how the world is or whatever? Or was it that, um, you know, for, sometimes for some people it can be that, well, the life advice that they got led to like really bad outcomes and so that caused them to doubt christianity in it which is different from maybe just thinking about the true the um proposed truths don't align up with what i'm experiencing or something like how is it how is it for you was it that um and how was that deconstruction process that you know like that sometimes people um struggle with the idea of spiritual warfare and that you know those doubts are to do with that or um so so yeah what what happened in your case yeah spiritual warfare reminds me of frank peretti uh, that Christian author who used to talk about like, yeah, they're like demons and like pull it like in the back of our head. Anyway, yes, um, yeah. <laughs> all that fun stuff. Um, no, I, so for me, it actually, when I, the first question you would ask is something along the lines of when did you, you know, uh, start to push against conversion therapy or see it yeah. as something different than what I initially saw it as. Yeah. Um, it was at McMaster. So I went to, after Liberty, I, I went straight to my MA at McMaster. 
and it was there um, because because I'd lived so thoroughly comfortably within the evangelical world, the evangelical world was my normal. Um, right. it, I was living under this different sacred canopy of, of Christianity versus everyone else's, of course not. And so um, everything within that seemed very normal. It seemed like this was, um, <laughs> this was just life. And so when I went to conversion therapy, again, it's not like I advertised it. I wasn't telling people I was going, I told a few people and I told a few friends, but um, like really close friends, but I didn't really go past that. And so when I got to McMaster, I think that, I think that some of my colleagues were just like, who the hell is this guy? Um, okay. He just seems like a very, because uh, I, I was a, I was the kid who came from the States. Um, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian, but again, I, I, I had just moved from, from Lynchburg, yeah. Virginia. And I was, I, I wasn't prepared well at all. Liberty did not offer me an education that prepared me uh, for graduate school, which was a huge issue. And that's a whole other story, right. okay. their academics. But um, I got to school and I was sharing an office with a few friends. And I remember I shared with one friend that I went through conversion therapy. And I, again, I didn't, if anything, I was more embarrassed that I had gone through it. Not that, it, what, of course, the embarrassment shouldn't have been placed on me. It should have been placed on Liberty. And my friend, when I kind of, you know, told her that my colleague that I, I told her that I, I went through conversion therapy, she was like, you went through what? And, and it was, I, I remember seeing her reaction made me realize this wasn't right. This yeah, wasn't yeah. normal. And I started sharing with a few other friends at McMaster and same thing. They were like, Luke, like <laughs> what the heck happened to you? And I started thinking more and more of it. And then I got to, to Vanderbilt um, where I did my other masters. And it was there that same thing. It was, it was, it was almost this, this compassion that people, not almost, it was compassion that people were showing mm -hmm. where they were saying like, that's not okay. That's terrible. Yeah. And I started realizing that my experience was not normal. And so Right. I think in large part, it was, it was because of leaving the, the, the bubble, the, what they call the Liberty bubble. Um, and then also in, in a lot of ways, leaving the Christian bubble, though I was still, I was leading a youth group in Hamilton. Like I was for all intents and purposes, the youth pastor, but it wasn't really like, it wasn't sure. an official title. Um, but every Friday night I was leading this youth group. Um, and so I think that um, for me, when I got to McMaster, it was it was encountering difference, encountering differences of opinion, people who had different uh, uh, experiences, different lives than I did, uh, that pushed me to start to consider my firmly held beliefs and what I thought was normal. And so uh, it was actually not my sexuality, to answer your second question, that, that pushed me from Christianity. Um, it was the Holocaust. So again, I studied the Holocaust. Mostly okay. what I study is the transmission of trauma from survivors to their children, to their sure. grandchildren. But before that, I did my, th my, my first thesis was on uh, Holocaust literature. And then I did some work on Nazi propaganda. And so, um, and all the right. while taking courses on the Holocaust. And so working with these, these texts and reading mostly the work of Elie Wiesel, it was actually Elie Wiesel's work that uh, pushed me over the edge. And yeah. that's when I was doing my PhD. It wasn't even... Uh, you know, the years immediately after Liberty. Cause again, even then I was still struggling to reconcile my faith and my sexuality. And again, I think for anyone out there who is a Christian and is gay or lesbian or, you know, trans or, um, you know, any other uh, part of the uh, LGBTQ plus acronym or it falls under that umbrella, should I say? Um, I think that it's absolutely possible to, to reconcile your faith. Granted for me, like, it's not something I want. I don't, that's not a conversation I'm really interested in anymore. Like, I don't care to do sure. that. Um, but if that is something that's yeah. invested in, sure. 
Um, and it is possible. However, for me, it was it was not my sexuality that pushed me from from Christianity. It was one hundred percent my study of the Holocaust. Um, okay. Granted, the, my sexuality did offer a wedge into my binary understanding of the world because once I accepted my my sexuality, that yeah. no longer fully aligned with what I had been taught that it was right, wrong, good, evil, you know, of mm. God, of of the enemy. And I yeah. decided that um, I was going to accept myself. Uh, for the first time really in a lot of ways um, because I, I started thinking about how I was practicing my theology, which at the time it was, uh, I theologized first and then lived. And I hoped that my lived okay. reality would fit with my preconceived notions versus I was like, let me just live first and then theorize or theologize afterwards. Right. right? Okay. So, um, cause again, I, the, I, I like to say that theology after all is theory, right? We're, all of what we're doing when we're theologizing is theorizing about the divine, we're theorizing about God. And so, I uh, got to Florida. I did my, I'm doing, I still am technically doing, pardon me, I still am doing my PhD in Florida. I'm just not living in Florida. Um, uh, I'm dissertating from Toronto. But when I was living in Florida, I, I was sitting on my couch one time and I was reading some of Eli Wiesel's work. Eli Wiesel is a, a really no, a well-known Holocaust survivor. Um, okay. His work, uh, Night, is perhaps his best known work. Uh, won the Nobel, or he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, he's just a, a phenomenal human. He died. Uh, uh, was it 2016? Um, I believe it was 2016. Anyway, uh, Vizel. So I was reading his work and he's unrelenting with God. Like he never lets up. And, you know, because of his experience in, 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 uh, during the Holocaust, his faith of course changed and it was profoundly different. Um, but he never gave up being a Jew, which is of course, of course, separate from, from my, my faith journey. But for him, you know, even I believe it was a New York Times uh, article he wrote, and it was essentially saying, like, he says to God, it's this prayer, he's saying, he's like, God, can we just, like, figure this out? <laughs> like, can we just do this? Like, can we finally just talk about what happened? Um, like, can we just know, you know, your role? Where were you, you know, during right. during the Holocaust? Yeah, so yeah. for me, it was Elie Wiesel's unrelenting pressure that he put on God. And I think from what it was, it was the breaking point for me was actually... Um, which is so funny that this didn't come years earlier, but this is, of course, just the way it was. Um, I was I was thinking about the phrase because I heard someone talk about. They said something about they they were blessed because they gotten a free coffee at Starbucks, okay. and I sat there and I was like, "You've got to be kidding me!" Because yeah. I was like, "Let's break this down." Okay, so so and so, let's call her Becky. Becky has gotten a free Starbucks from coffee because God blessed her. That means that God went out of God's way to bless Becky with a free Starbucks coffee. So that means that's an active bestowal of, 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 uh, uh, of God's love. So God actively did that. So that means that when God acts, God is therefore active. That also means that God at other points is not active, which is also a decision. Yeah. I always tell my students when I, when I teach writing, I say every word you put on the page is a decision. So if God at some points is, is blessing some people, that's a decision. At other points, God's not blessing other people. At other points, right. that's also a decision. Just in the same way a student puts a word on the paper or doesn't put a word on the paper, both decisions. So yeah. that means that God's giving some blessings at other times, not at other times. So that means that there are act, God's actively not helping out certain groups, communities, yeah. whatever, and individuals, of course. And I thought to myself, so God is giving Becky a coffee, but not helping right. so-and-so hmm. in, you know, Pick your moment of violence, pick your atrocity, pick your even, you know, uh, just kind of a crummy situation that someone's in, right? Yeah. If that's the case, God's got a lot to, God has a lot to own up to. Where's God when, when so-and-so is, is hurt and, 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 uh, you know, uh, suffering versus 
when so-and-so is getting a coffee. Right. Like, give me a freaking break. Like that to me was this, was this moment where I could no longer accept. And again, this should have, this realization should have come so much earlier, <laughs> but this was the, this was, you know, what happened. And I, and I, and I just think to myself, I can't get on board with a God who acts in a world sometimes and for only seemingly some people um, and in some ways, not even for some people, right? It's like, it's confirmation bias again. You know, Becky probably had a crummy day the day before and the day before that, but God gave her a coffee. So, you know, yeah, she's yeah. going to forget about those crummy days, but then just think, oh, God's good. And you're like, yeah, God's good to you on some days. And God's yeah. not good to a lot of people on most days. So where is this God? Who is this God? I don't want to know this God. Right. And, and I think for me, it's not where I don't believe in God. Like I, I, I do believe in God, um, but I don't believe in the God that I've been told about. I don't believe yes, in the God that I people see, told yeah. me to believe in um, yeah. because that God doesn't align with my lived reality or a lot yeah. of people's lived realities. Cause my life's pretty decent for what it is. Um, right. But a lot of people don't have lives like me. And if that's the case, like who am I to say that there's a God that's, that's loving and good in the same way that Christians frame him or her or them. Well, in Christianity it's him, but um, you know, uh, you know, I, I can't get on board with that. Again, I do believe in God. I, I think ultimately I believe, um, I'm more of like a deist, right? Where right. I'm like very Thomas Jefferson about things. I'm like, God created the world yeah. and stepped the heck back. Um, right. Yeah. So I, I think the especially difficult um, part with like that kind of classical theism is perhaps the idea that um, this, like, like you were saying, this God's aware of all these things, choosing to act um, at least on, you know, what many Christians see as like providence in like a cup of coffee or whatever, choosing to act in those situations, not acting in the other, in the other, you know, like you said, trivially bad or like really, really bad situations. But then um, the idea then that in the afterlife of, you know, like there's going to be people who basically didn't accept uh, Jesus, which are the, you know, the, the necessary conditions for being saved on their view, but just through ignorance or make, you know, make these bad moral choices just through almost environmental factors and, and suffer as a result of it just because of almost where they're born, but then receive infinite punishment as, and that's the really messed up part of that particular belief. Um, like, like for, for where I'm at personally thinking about that whole thing, it's like maybe, you know, like the only way I could square any of that away is if like one day it literally, you know, like, like these kind of like soul building defenses and things where it's like, well, one day it all made sense and everyone was actually the better for that suffering. But anything other than that just seems to me, um, you know, like, like you can't, you can't have like a morally perfect being who would, in, in my view, who would um, be aware of those things and then like sending some of those people to, to hell forever because of um, them not reaching the right conclusions in like horrible circumstances. That's, but Nathan, I think that that's part of it too, right? What makes Christianity so um, motivating, like powerful, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> that I I believe at the end of the day, if I don't, or pardon me, I believe that if if I don't follow what God is, you know, telling me to do, or what again the Bible is telling me to do, and even that, like, is the Bible telling me to do that? Or is my interpretation, of course, this is you know there's yeah. so many layers to it. Um, if I don't do what apparently you know so and so this pastor or you know uh, this spiritual leader in my life is saying. Uh, to do or to believe that I'm going to hell. And again, right. I think when I think back on, on my own experience, what kept me so tied to evangelicalism was the threat of eternal punishment, right? Mm -hmm. That I constantly had the hellfires, uh, you know, hellfires burning beneath my feet 
because I thought if I slip up or if I start living the gay lifestyle, whatever that is, my life's just as boring as straight people. You know, if I'm living that big old gay lifestyle that I'm going to go to hell, my word, that's a pretty effective way to keep you in line, right? And you have that threat over your head for so long. um, It's pretty, it's pretty terrifying on a daily basis. And did you, did you struggle with that idea after, you know, at whatever point you kind of decided maybe this isn't true or maybe going back and forth a bit? And was this something you were like psychologically struggling to get to grips with, you know, like, oh, I, like I'm making a choice where I'm choosing hell or something or um, I, I, I don't know, like, what was that a thing you had to address like psychologically or? Yeah, I remember I remember the first time I met it. This was at Vanderbilt. I met someone who was training to be a pastor and she didn't believe in hell. And I remember being like, what kind of Christian are you? She was like, she was like Episcopalian, that's who, um, or that's what type I am. Um, and and I remember thinking that was just wild. Like who, who, who does she think she is to get rid of hell? <laughs> um, right. But it was this slow journey of, and again, it's this slow deconstruction where even the fact that it took me till I was what, 20, seven 20 yeah 27 to um to start separating myself fully from christianity i mean what it just shows you how strong and influential this thinking really can be um and maybe just is in a cultural or a greater sense right for christian culture and cultures of you know cultures within the west and so um it was an it was a really slow process um it was a really tough process because again, it's almost like we're, you know, like the, there, when you're a kid, the floor is lava and you have to like, you don't want to like take a step. Like what if the floor turns right. into lava yeah, and yeah. you're like really terrified to take that step. And then you take the step and it's solid ground. And then you take the next step and you're like, oh my gosh, that's solid ground. And it's not right. lava. Yeah, and yeah. you know, uh, it's, it was kind of like that where it was this testing, constant testing mm-hmm. of reality of my life, of my lived realities um or reality pardon me maybe the realities maybe i have multiple realities who knows um but i remember it was this slow journey of of beginning to test the waters in certain areas and right. even with things like saying oh my god i mean i don't really say oh my god still it's kind yeah. of hardwired in me in a lot of ways but things like that where yeah, I first, I if i ever said it before i felt just like that like affective <gasps> like terror um whereas now it's like nothing happened you know and not to say like before i thought that i was going to be burned to death or anything obviously not yeah i know what you mean yeah there's just these like little things that i think that add up over time and then again when you're having enough conversations with enough people especially people who are different from you who challenge you to think otherwise um it's it's very helpful um and i wouldn't be the the i wouldn't be who i am today if it weren't for these other conversations with these other people who challenged me to think like hey luke if you do this it's not like you're going to just go to hell and I was like, well, you don't know that because you don't know God. And then all of a sudden, you know, again, not that I'm dead yet, um, but uh, just having these, again, these these conversations that opened up other realms of possibility um, were huge. Yeah. So if, if there's anyone who's kind of like listened to your story and, and this whole thing and say if they're a Christian who um, has sort of like had had feelings towards the same sex or feelings about their sexuality that are, are different from maybe the the um normal heterosexual whatever normal heterosexual kind of is or if they're involved in any way with this kind of theology of like um conversion therapy of um that i i see it as like in group like language signaling when people like like they're struggling with same sex uh sin or something like that um 
if, if there are Christians who are listening to that, what would you want to say to them? You know, like how would you want them to um, deal with this topic, deal with people like yourself? What What would you want them to know? Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it's funny that you say that the idea of like having those those uh, the in group language, like these these signals, because yeah. they are signals. I remember when I was at Liberty, he was actually. Um, uh, he was one of the the few people I, I came out to early at Liberty. Um, this 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 guy, one of my friends. Uh, I won't I, I won't use his name. Um, but he uh, he and I were. Uh, he knew that something had happened on my dorm. He knew that my spiritual life director and I had some sort of rift. And uh, he was like, uh, he's like, do you want to talk about it? And I was like, no, like I don't know. I don't want to get into the details. Like I don't want you to judge me for what you know, blah blah. You know what went down. And he was like. What do you mean? And I was like, uh, uh, well, if I'm too if I'm too specific with you, then like I'm going to be embarrassed because I don't want you to know like the truth. And so yeah. um, I said to him though, I said, but I did write a poem. I said, can I, can I read you a poem? And so I read this poem that I, I had written about this experience with this guy not talking to me anymore. Right. And afterwards, he always had these like funny um, <laughs> these lips, like his lips were like, <laughs> kind of, like weird when it, when he when he, whenever we talked about anything gay, is weird. His lips just got kind of weird. And he was like, uh, I think I know what you're talking about. You know, lips. Right. And I said, right. I said, I said, uh, oh shoot! Like I maybe I was I was too explicit in this poem. And I said, uh, you do? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, he said, he said, he said, uh, like, can you explain to me more about what it's about? And I said, no. Again, like I don't want to tell you because I don't want you to judge me if 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 I tell you, you know, I reveal what what happened. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, well, here's the thing. I I think I struggle with the same thing. And of course, right. struggling in Christianese is you know. It can yeah. be used in a number of contexts, but the way that, again, it was like all these sort of, there were other clues that were pointing towards when he, you know, when he said struggle, I was like, wait a second, I think we might yeah, be talking yeah. about the same thing here. And so then back and forth, it was kind of this like fumbling, awkward, like, do we, uh, well, uh, I struggle with, uh, I struggle with the uh, same sex attraction. Yeah, and then, yeah. ah, I vomited out. And, and so, yeah, I think that it absolutely is, uh, there's language there that, that, that signals, um, anyway, that's just a, a an yeah, no, yeah. I think it but, is really interesting. I hit, like, I, I often hear sort of, I'm trying to think of a few off my head, but it's kind of like, um, you know, like walk your walk in your walk with the Lord, like let, that kind of thing. Like you just, especially when I watch like Christian uh, YouTube channels and things, that you just hear this language coming up, and it's it's very interesting how it's just this internal like signaling mechanism or something that like it, it's almost often very like if if you were to say, well, what does that refer to? What's like the referent of that? So it's very difficult to like. You know, like the walk with the Lord. What is that? Do you just mean reality or life or exist? Like, yeah. But. It's even funny in like dating when I, I've I've gone on like um like some dates with with guys who mostly in the states actually less in Canada, um less so in Canada. But in the states, you'll go on dates and guys will say things and you'll be, and you'll say and, I, and I'll just say like you were raised in the church, weren't you? And they're like, yeah. How'd you know? And I'll be like, well, it's the language you're using. It's so clear. yeah. Um. So I. Uh, but yeah, so uh, what I would say to these folks, I mean, oh, there's so much, right? Like for me, again, it wasn't, and my goal is never to get people to like renounce their faith. I don't care what people believe. Like I really don't, as long as what they believe isn't hurting others. Yeah. Right. So it's never like what I do or what I say or what I write is to uh, discredit anyone's faith system. No, it's only to make their faith system better. Um, it's only right. that they take yeah. into consideration how their faith system can be a part of a larger system that really uh, damages and hurts a lot of people. Yeah. And so when, so there's, so there's that. So like whatever I do say, it's again, it's not to like get that person to like 
renounce their faith. I don't, I just don't care. Um, I just care that it's better uh, and that they're better for it. And so, I mean, I would start with a lot of like questions just about scriptural interpretation, like how, like what are people's hermeneutics and like, what do they say about scripture? And what's the relationship to scripture? Are these words about God? Are these God's words? Like what exactly do they believe? Yeah. And I think that that conversation when you, cause I always say to, you know, I, I have people from mostly from Liberty actually, who reach out to me and say like, Hey, can we talk sometime? I'm, you know, a gay person and uh, I'm thinking through these questions. And I've had like a number of people right. who have reached out, which has been cool. Um, and we, I normally start the conversation with questions about scripture. Like what, you know, what do you believe in scripture? What do you think, uh, you know, God said, or, did people say about God and like having these conversations after that um, it is that your faith doesn't, your faith is not mutually exclusive uh, yeah. uh, uh, with your sexuality, your sexuality. Again, I think that, you know, in the, in the ways that Jesus, even Jesus describes himself as like a mother hen at one point. Um, right. He, uh, there's the Shekinah glory, which is considered a more feminine energy within the, within uh, God or, or uh, yeah. Well, anyway, Hebrew Bible interpretation versus, you know, Christian interpretation yeah, yeah. Um, or a Jewish interpretation, should I say? Um, but I think that God's gender full, God's not one gender. And so, you know, even this like translation of he, him and whatever, when we're referring to God and God, the father, I think that's something uh, that is something to just think about that, you know, your gender identity and also your sexuality are not um, aberrate, like aberrations from, uh, God, that they're actually part of God, if we believe God to be this full, inclusive, loving being. Um, I would also say that, yeah. you know, it's, it is, again, like in addition to, to considering how people approach the Bible, which is foundational to this entire conversation, but um, also thinking about who they're reading and who they're listening to, right? If we're only reading authors who are a part of the Southern Baptist tradition, or if we're only reading authors who, you know, are, you know, parts of, or, or, or pastors of mega churches, or, yeah. You know, uh, what's his name? Kenneth Copeland. Is that his name? The yeah. pastor in Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> Who's his, I think it's his yeah. birthday today. Um, if, oh, I'm really? not, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> happy birthday. Uh, what is his name? Brother, brother Copeland. Um, but <laughs> putting, you know, I think that if you're only listening to certain people, of course, you're only going to uh, be entertaining certain thoughts, right? Yeah. About God, about uh, spirituality, about sexuality. And so, I, you know, the idea of reading someone who's different from you, I would also say like check out books by people who are, who are maybe kind of like you, but maybe kind of not. I can think about Matthew Vine's God and the Gay Christian, uh, this book that um, he comes from an evangelical perspective. Like he doesn't abandon his evangelicalism, um, but he does abandon the way that evangelicalism uh, has understood sexuality for the past hundred yeah. or so years. Um, and so, you know, there are so many people out there and there's so many you know folks to talk to as well, um, to have conversation partners with people who are different. Um, that's huge. I mean, I just think to myself that uh, when you have folks who are a part of these very particular conversations or a part of these very particular communities that don't really branch out into other areas. And again, if someone's listening to this podcast or this, you know, uh, the show, they probably are starting to explore things, which is great. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, most of the time people don't reach out or don't uh, branch out, should I say, uh, past uh, what they're comfortable with. But again, push your comfort level. If God's so big and if God's so, in, if God's so, you know, powerful, then I think God can handle you listening to a few podcasts or reading a few books or articles or whatever, right? If, if that's, if you're worried that your faith's going to be troubled, maybe your faith isn't all that strong. And maybe you should question why your faith isn't all that strong, right? And you should think about what's making me nervous to engage with other people or to read other people, you know, because it's one thing to talk to someone, but it's also another thing that's not as active to just listen or to just read, right? So, and again, no one's 
forcing you to believe what they say, but at least start considering, at least start thinking and think again about your lived reality. Think, think through yeah. your experiences, not just through theology, right? If we're only thinking through theology and we're not thinking through how we live and actually going out there and, you know, going on Tinder, going on a date, what, what harm is that? Again, like no one's forcing you to do anything on those dates, but again, to, to put yourself in situations where you are living first and thinking after in a way, not to say like do something, something reckless, obviously, yeah. but like, I think like the idea yeah. of, 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 of theologizing through our lived experiences yes. uh, yeah. first and then theorizing after about what we think the meaning behind whatever, you know, activity or whatever experience uh, is or was um, afterwards. And so I think that this is, these are, these are things that I think are, that were super helpful for me uh, in how I navigated my faith journey, uh, how I've navigated not just my faith journey, but my life in general, um, engaging with people who are different, trying to understand people who are different. Um, especially if those differences are something that I see uh, that are actually not so much differences, but similarities that I'm just pushing down and saying, that's not like me, but I want, I wish that were like me, but I also wish it weren't like me because I think that it's wrong to be gay. But at the same time, I want to be gay because that's who I am. But I think that when these were, these were ways of, of, of reforming how I understood God, how I understood sexual, how I understood myself. Um, and I think that there are effective ways for other people to do the same. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of really cool stuff in what you just said there. Like, um, I like that idea, especially of like, you know, if if, a, if that kind of God exists, right, and all, where all truth is God's truth, then you should be able to pursue any question with an open mind to the best of your ability. And you'll, you know, you, whatever true conclusions you reach would, would be more like the character of that God. Um, and I, I think in general, like this is just a general feature of human thinking and psychology like it's not just like um being a part of christian religion it's like constantly being against our biases and like our like i remember um in the kind of christianity i was in where we'd read like the athanasian creed every sunday and i remember i had a conversation with someone once and i was like oh maybe we should read this by athanasius and this person was really into like john piper the um calvinist yeah and um, and he was like, well, my understanding is that Athanasius was a heretic and stuff. And it's like, you know, that's literally the creed we read. You know, like there's all, all these really, um, everything like you were saying is black and white, right? It's, it's like, I've got, I'm standing on the truth. I've got it. And there just isn't this, uh, this like, what's it like an understanding of my own fallibility? Cause this is like an ultimate revealed truth and uh, it can't be uh, questioned. Whereas like, yeah, I, th I think it's great to encourage people it's not it's like you know it's not because i'm from uh I, I i'm from satan and trying to get you to question your beliefs it's like it should lead to like a more um uh, what i don't know like like a maybe a, a faith that's more like what you see in the character of jesus right rather than the people you know rather than the the fancy metaphysics and the going in the temples and stuff that the guy who's like um living amongst the people and uh, it's not to say that that's necessarily what I, but I think that that's probably a better Christianity than the yeah. other sort. More incarnational in a way, right? Where like to take God into the dark places, to take God yeah. to what's yeah. considered dark. And, you know, the, a gay bar is pretty dark according to some standards. Right. Why not go check out a gay bar for a quick second, right? Like yeah. after COVID and all that. Um, <laughs> I know I, I, I do. I think that you're absolutely right. It's a more robust faith. It's a more sincere and honest faith. And yeah. I think that for me, like what, what drew me away from the the faith that I had for so long was an intellectual curiosity that ultimately said, 
you know, it wasn't satisfied within the church. And I think it was stifled within the church. It was circumscribed in the church in a way that was unproductive in a way that ultimately I don't think the divine would want. Um, yeah. And I, and I do, again, I still believe in God. I, who that God is, I don't really know. Um, mm-hmm. But what I do believe is that that God wouldn't want me to, to stick within a tradition that um, not only actively worked against me as a person, yeah. but on top of that, that didn't allow for intellectual curiosity. And I, like you yeah. said, you know, you, you threw out some Augustine there, some all, all truth is God's truth. And if in fact that is true, if in fact all truth is God's truth, then don't be afraid of the truth. Don't be afraid of where it takes yeah. you because ultimately God will be there too. Yeah. If in so fact someone, believe- I was just going to say, someone asked in the chat earlier, um, do you think religion is the major factor here um, or just like an excuse for, um, seems like homophobia is extremely uh, common. I think they meant there, regardless of religion. Can we put the um, question back up just so I can read it? Yeah, sorry. Um, let me scroll back up. I just clicked off it and I don't know where it's gone now. Um, there we go. Straight. Oh, wait, this is something separate. Yeah, that's the thing. It almost seems to me like straight people are scared to be attracted or something. You don't see much hate about asexuality, for example, although the arguments apply there too. Um, uh, that, oh, that, was a set, that wasn't the right one. Um, it was same person earlier comment. <laughs> do you really think that religion is the major factor here and not just an excuse? It seems to me that homophobic... Sure. So I, I think I can think about my mom. Um, when, <laughs> when I when I came out to her, um, I was living in, in in Nashville, and I she was going to come down for Christmas because none of my siblings at the time were talking to her, uh, and so she was going to come down for <laughs> uh, Christmas in Nashville. And I want I mean, all I wanted to do was go back home, but I said, you know what, mom, if, if no one else is because she was all upset about Christmas, and she's like, no, like no one's going to come down and visit me, and or uh, to, to where she was living she's like everyone's upset with me everyone no one wants to talk to me right now and i said well you know what i'm talking to you why don't you just come to nashville and we'll have a fun christmas here because that'll at least get your mind off the fact that no one's talking to you and so she was like sure so i then thought to myself well goodness how am i going to explain like the setup of my apartment with my roommate um okay i have to come out <laughs> so i called her that night and i said like hey uh just so you know when you come down here i am you know i, I, I came out i said okay and she freaked out hung up on me and I woke up in the morning to a slew of text messages mm. uh, and the text messages were saying things like Sodom and Gomorrah and again they were like spelled incorrectly and I was like oh man this is a ref- like your spelling mistakes are in any way a reflection of your again like your thought out <laughs> yeah. religion uh, not looking good for you Cheryl but um, she was throwing out all these like again references to the Bible though even when I asked her one time I said mom where is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. And she was like, right. I don't know. And I was like, New Testament or, or Hebrew Bible? And she was like, I don't know. And I was like, yeah. okay, um, perfect. Uh, and so so I think that religion maps onto uh, homophobia really well. Uh, but I also think that uh, it's, it's, this, it's this dual process because again, the way that homophobia is constructed, I think is in large part because of religion. Um, but then religion as a result, when you apply religion to homosexuality or to gay people, it it's exclusionary, I think, definitionally, uh, at least in that context. Again, according to certain understandings of scripture, I really don't actually even think that the Bible says, what even that means the Bible says, um, or, you know, I, I don't really even think that that scripture lends itself well to homophobia. I really don't. Um, but according to certain understandings, according to certain interpretations yeah. of scripture and certain translations of scripture where the yeah, word homosexuality yeah. is in or not, um, I think that that maps on really well uh, to exclusionary uh, exclusion of, of certain groups. 
uh, right? Again, if you have or either or paradigm, right or wrong, then some groups are in, some groups are out. And so I think that um, uh, it's not just, I think that religion lends itself very well, particularly conservative Christianity to, to hatred. Um, yeah. And that's what I would say about that. Great. Um, so I guess if we've been talking for about an hour and a half now, if we wrap it up around here, is there anything you want to say about like where people can find you or anything that you're working on and that you'd want to promote if people want to hear more about um, your kind of like stories and thoughts on things? Yeah. So um, let me find my Twitter. I, I, I still don't know my handle. On Instagram, <laughs> I'm at Luke Slam Dunk Wilson. Uh, and then uh, on oh. Twitter, I'm at Wilson underscore F w um and then am i on anything else no i mean there's facebook like linkedin that kind of stuff but things where i'm active uh that's my yeah that's my twitter handle uh and then on instagram i'm at luke slim dunk wilson right great um so i'll put those links in the description afterwards as well um it's been great talking to you and really interesting to see your story but also i think it's good to see how you've like integrated all those experiences into like becoming what seems like um, a better person. And now you're, but also trying to like help other people through, through these things as well. Like, um, like you're not a victim of what happened or whatever, not to say, but, but it, you know, like people, not to say people who uh, struggle more or are victims are like, you know, like it's their fault or that, but, but I just mean, it's, it's good to see that, um, some good has like you know what what man intended for evil <laughs> oh yes yeah. i love my good use of, of scripture no i think yeah i think that for me like yeah what happened to me was not okay what happened to me was not good what happened to me was 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 wrong um but do i live in the identity that i am a perpetual victim no um do i need to live in that identity no uh my life is much better by not um again i recognize that what happened to me was wrong but i also like you're saying i, I want to do what i can uh, to help other people live lives that are, are freer, are better, um, and not as restricted by a faith system that tells them that they're bad just for, you know, being who they are. Yeah. Right. Well, I will end the stream there then. Thank you everyone for watching. Um, if you have enjoyed, um, be sure to like the video, um, which helps the algorithm to get this out to more people. Thanks.